We need to give ourselves to pursue unity and harmony in the body of Christ. How delightfully good it is when we're in unity and harmony, but unity demands that you chase it, that you pursue it, that you give yourself to it. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Uh, Next week, we're going to return and finish our study of Mark's biography of Jesus, or at least we're going to uh, we're going to start back into that and hopefully finish it by the end of the year. But today it's Psalm 133. And I do hope that this morning when you leave here, you're going to be encouraged. And you're going to be encouraged to pursue being a part of, of our community. Although I see we have some guests here this morning, and, and I, I don't want to just limit it to our community. I want to say I hope you'll be encouraged to pursue community in, in some body of Christ, if you're not already a part of a, of a body somewhere. It's a short psalm. I'm going to read it in its fullness. Here we go. It says, How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. Now this is one of the Psalms of Ascent. That's what they're called, the Psalms of Ascent. I'm not sure the numbers, like 120-something through 130-something, maybe or 140-something. But these are Psalms that the, the Jews would sing when they would go to Jerusalem during Passover or one of the other festivals. As they're ascending the mountain to Jerusalem, they would, they would sing these Psalms uh, of ascent, much like we talked about last week, the Hallel Psalms and how they would sing those psalms on Passover. These are psalms they sung on their way uh, to Jerusalem. I, remen- I remember thirty years or more of a March for Life marches in Washington D.C. Uh, I don't know that I went to all thirty-six since I've been here, but uh, I- I've went to most of those. And, and there would be many marches where someone would start singing. And they would just start singing a song. And the rest of us would know that song. Now, now I, I'll be honest with you, most of the times they were chants, right? I'm, I'm pro-life, how about you? You know, that kind of thing. But every once in a while, somebody would sing. And when they would sing, the rest of us would know the song. And you'd have this, this, this sea of people marching up to the Capitol, all singing. And usually there would be a praise song that we were singing. I think that's the picture that we get of the Psalms of Ascent. As they were marching to Jerusalem, they would just would all be singing. They would all know these psalms and they would all be singing. David wrote this particular psalm and others. Uh, maybe David was inspired by what he saw as he looked out of his window there in his, uh, in his castle or, or his house. What do you call a big house that a king lives in? Palace. Thank you, palace. Yeah, yeah, palace. He's looking at his palace window, and, and he's watching this throng of people, 
and he's inspired. And maybe he wrote this song out of that inspiration. Now, at first, I, I focused on the harmony part of that psalm. And I'm going to come back to it, and that's going to be the main part of this, of this talk this morning. But, uh, but I thought of something as I was working on this. I actually had written everything down, and I came and reinserted this because uh, there's something I want to talk about before we talk about the harmony part of the psalm, and that is that this psalm presupposes something that is foundational. And here's what it presupposes. It presupposes a commitment for brothers and sisters to be a family. It presupposes that the Jews that were ascending to Jerusalem were a a group of people who would do life together. It presupposes a dedication to community. Now, let's be honest, um, I'm not really sure we have that that pre- uh, that we presuppose that anymore, that everyone should have a commitment to community. Uh, Alexis Tocqueville, is that how you say his name? Tocqueville, the guy who came over here and examined America in the 1800s, you know, and he, he said what made America exceptional. One of the things that he said was that uh, America was built on communities that were structured from the bottom up. Now, most of us uh, in America, most of us Americans would probably agree that we've lost that or we're losing that. Networks and social media relationships are rapidly replacing personal small group communities. But, uh, but we're not here as Americans this morning. We're here as followers of Jesus. And, and I think it's safe to say that even within the body of Christ, we are losing um, this dedication, this commitment to community, to live together as a family, to do life together. People are trading community in for the convenience and for the individualism of live stream. I mean, live stream's great, and uh, it really is. When you're sick or you can't be here or you're traveling, I tell you, there's a connection via live stream of being here, but, but people are trading in live stream for community. But before we blame live stream on, this is how it's been, I think, for a long, long time. The big churches in America, big churches in America, people like big churches. You know why they like big churches? They like big churches because they can go and sit in the back and hide and get up and leave and nobody is asking any more of them. They're just here for the, the experience of, of, of the meeting. Um, we've created in the church this consumer mentality. Rather than a loyal commitment to community and doing life together, we're consuming. And that's why... You know, if you have a better product for, if we have a better product for you to consume, then, then you're more likely to come here than somewhere else where the product's not quite as good as far as consuming, as opposed to having this sort of commitment to, to do life together. In, uh, in many evangelical circles, I, I want you to know, I don't think this is true, but in many evangelical circles, if you attend a church once a month, if you come on a Sunday and are in the group once a month, then you're considered to be a very faithful church member. I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what, I don't mean to disparage anyone, but I don't think that's what God has in mind when he talks about being involved in community. Uh, I think he, uh, he speaks of us as a family in his scripture as brothers and sisters because this is super important to him. The early believers, listen to this, and I know you know this, but the early believers were so focused on community, they met from house to house. Uh, doesn't it say daily? 
Now, it says daily, I'm pretty sure. And I'm not advocating for that specific pattern. I'm not saying that we need to emulate that. I'm really not. I, I think part of their daily commitment to meeting together had a lot to do with their, I mean, they were just absolutely sure any day Jesus was going to return. I think there was, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of expectation in that day. We've got 2,000 years of waiting. And so we're not quite as convinced that today's going to be the day, right, as they might have been back then. But, but their commitment was, to doing life together with others who followed Jesus. And I think this psalm, and David specifically presupposes, as he's going to talk about what he's going to talk about, he presupposes there's a commitment to community. And, there's a com- and, and this commitment to community itself is a good thing. So before I go any further, I'd like to ask you about your commitment to Christian community. And maybe specifically, since most of us, this is, our, this is our community, I'd like to ask you about your commitment to this Christian community. Are you dedicated to doing life as a follower of Jesus with others who follow Jesus? Are, are you, is, that, is that woven into the warp and wolf of your life? Are you sowing your life into relationships with other believers in, uh, in your church family, whichever that might be. Your choice, but I'm telling you, it's something that God desires of you. It's something that God expects of us. So uh, presupposing that we're doing life in community, the psalmist speaks of unity or harmony in that community. And, and David's going to make four statements about harmony in community. And uh, I'd like you to note them with me. Here's the first one. Unity in community... Yeah, they're going to rhyme like that, okay? (laughs) Unity and community is a good thing. Here's what the text says. How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. And I just got through telling you, I think it's good when brothers live together. I think that presupposes that. But he says, how delightfully good it is when brothers live together in harmony. You know, in this text, the, the CSB doesn't, I, I need to go back. I didn't really do this, but but in the original text, there's the there is the word "behold." In fact, some of your translations, if you're not using the CSB, it says "behold how good uh, how good it is for brothers to dwell." And and maybe that bull "behold" is found in the delightful. I'm not really sure, but but that "behold" idea is look at this, pay attention to this. Hey, see this, everyone, David says. It's, it is so good for brothers and sisters to live together in harmony. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, Behold, it is a wonder seldom seen. Therefore, behold it. It may be seen, for it is the characteristic of real saints. Therefore, fail not to inspect it. It is worth well worth admiration. Pause and gaze upon it. It will charm you into imitation. Therefore, note it well. It's just amazingly a good thing when brothers and sisters can live together in community, in harmony, in in unity. And by the way, the word brothers there includes you sisters. It's a generic word for all of us, right? And I'm pretty sure that that what David meant by, by brothers and sisters are God's people. And so he's saying it's a delightfully good thing when God's people, his sons and daughters, live together in unity and harmony. 
So, so why would I apply this? I mean, this was directed at the Jews. This is Old Testament. I mean, I, I really feel like I'm on really good ground to pull this up and say, when he talks about brothers and sisters, because we're really a continuation of God's promises to Abraham, I believe, and, and we are brothers and sisters. That The New Testament is really clear on that. So I think it's really safe for me to pull this up and say, just as this was true for them, it's true for us. It is a delightfully good thing for us to be united. Why does, why does David say, behold? Why does he say, look at this? You know, Why is he so delighted in unity? Well, I'm going to tell you, because unity is hard. Unity is hard. Remember this ditty? To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. And that is really true, isn't it? And, and when unity is faltering, it's always the other person's fault. Have you ever noticed that? If you're out of sorts with someone in the family, it's their fault. It's never your fault. A Christian had been stranded on a desert island for years, and when he was rescued, the, the rescuers were kind of shocked to notice he'd built two churches. And they asked him about that, and he pointed to the one on the left, and he said, well, that's the church I go to now. And he pointed to the other one. That's the church I went to before the split. <laughs> Unity is so delightfully good because it's not easy. And in my notes, I had written that it's rare, but I'm backing off that. I'm not going to say it's rare. But I'm going to say this, it's hard. And that's why David says it is so awesome when you see unity. Number two, unity and community is a sacred thing. Now let me explain why I'm saying that. David uses two similes in this this very short psalm. And the first one is the anointing oil on the head of Aaron. So he's, I believe he's saying living in harmony is like, and here's the simile, like fine oil on the head running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. And, and so what David is alluding to is Exodus 30. You know, the text number should be on the, on the screen, but let me just read it to you. So this is God in Exodus telling them what to do about, about the priesthood. He says, the Lord spoke to Moses, take for yourself the finest spices. And then he gives them this, this formula, 12 and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, six and a half pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, and a gallon of olive oil. Prepare from these a holy anointing oil, a scenting a scented blend, the work of a perfumer. It'll be a holy anointing oil. Can, can you smell it? <laughs> can you smell it in the room? Uh, anoint lots of temple things. Anoint Aaron as his son and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Tell the Israelites, this will be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. And then he says this, it must not be used on ordinary anointing uh, uh, on a person's body. And you must not make anything like this formula. It is holy. It must be holy to you. If you use it in an authorized way, you're going to be cut off from your people. So David could be saying unity and harmony is like this. It smells so sweet. It smells so wonderful like this perfume, this anointing oil. And, uh, but, and I think probably some commentators thought that, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I, I think he's talking about the oil as setting Aaron apart. Uh, the unity and harmony sets us apart in the same way that the anointing oil set Aaron apart. 
And he was special. He was anointed. He was declared to be holy and sacred. Remember, that's what, that's what holy and sacred mean. They mean set apart. The oil set Aaron apart. They weren't to use it on anything else. They were punished if they did. I think he's saying unity sets us apart from common life. Unity sets us apart from what we see in most of life. The normal among people, maybe unfortunately, even the norm among us people is, when I say us people, I mean God's people, is to divide, to divide ourselves into tribes and to stake our claims on what we think this ought to be or what we think that ought to be or how we ought to do this. And division, if we're not careful, just becomes the norm. It can become the norm for us. And what, what, what I think he's saying to us is, no, unity sets you apart. It makes you a sweet-smelling aroma, yes, but it's, it's anointing you. It's setting you apart from, from the common world. Um, and I think, I think this is why unity among believers has always been so important to me as a young Christian, and just as much today. It is a driving principle in my life. It is a guiding conviction in my heart for the last 40 years. I see our unity as a matter of holiness. It's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. But we continue to divide over so much. We divide over race. We divide over race. In fact, I'm I'm scanning our congregation. Okay, we're not totally one race in this room, right? But... The church is divided over race. You go down to Mount Nebo, and they're pretty much going to be one race. Lebanon's going to be one race. And, and I mean, we can make excuses and reasons for that. And I, mean, I shouldn't say excuses. That's pejorative. We, we can find reasons that maybe would be um, amoral reasons for why we are divided by those things. But, but unity, unity sets us apart. It's like the anointing oil on Aaron's head that set him apart. And, and so we, we need to, as a church family, we need to be united because it, it's what sets us apart from the world. And I think people outside these walls that don't know Jesus, if they see us bickering and fighting and separating and, and whatever, then there's nothing there for them. There's nothing there they want. But if they see unity and harmony among us, then, then they're going to take note of that. Number three, unity in community is a refreshing thing. The next simile is about the dew on Mount Hermon, verse three. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. This one, this one seems easier to me to understand than the, than the oil one. I guess the oil one could have several things you're trying to say, but the Mount Hermon one seems to be pretty clear. Mount Hermon's one of the tallest mountains there in Zion, one of the t- tallest mountains in Israel. And it's famed because it's arid all around it, but it's so tall, the dews are so heavy that the top of the mountain is lush with green. It's lush with, with vegetation. So I think what he's saying is that in the same way the dews of Hermon refresh that mountain in the midst of an arid country or arid land, he says unity is refreshing like that. You know, when we're in the midst of an arid, dry divisiveness or sin, unity and harmony amongst God's people is like a glass of cold water. It's like something that just refreshes our soul all the way down. Have you ever been involved in a group where tension and disunity have come about? Ever been involved in a group like that? 
I think probably maybe most of us have, because I just got through saying that that's probably the norm, not the, not the, the holiness is to be set apart and different than that. I think probably most of us have. And I want to tell you when, you know, you just feel the stress of disunity in the air. You feel it. You feel it. Years ago, I was, I was thinking about this this morning. I think we've had as a church family in the last 36 years, I think we've had uh, maybe three times where our unity was definitely troubled and it was, it, it was rough. But I remember the very first one was the worst. And uh, I mean, the, the stress for myself, I was a young man back then, and the stress for myself was so difficult. I, I remember breaking down and, and just crying and weeping at times because the stress was so great. But then we had a breakthrough. I mean, it was like, it, we had a breakthrough. And the following Sunday, the following Sunday, I remember waves of refreshing swept across our meeting that Sunday morning, and where I had dreaded Sunday mornings because of the stress of division among us, after that, that next Sunday, I just, I, I don't even know how to describe to you the waves of refreshing that came from our unity. I was thinking about the song, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing, right? It has this line, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing sent from the Savior above. You know, seasons of refreshing, I think, are those times when we're walking in the unity of Christ. So, we've seen that our unity is, is sweet, precious, a really good thing. We've seen that it sets us apart and marks us, I think, as God's people. We've seen that unity refreshes us and lifts us up. The fourth thing is unity and community is where the blessing of life is found. That's how he ends the psalm. For there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. So where is the there? Where's the there? There's where, there's where you find the blessing. Where's the there? Is it Mount Hermon? That's the last antecedent. Is that how you say it? That's the last antecedent for this, right? So is it Mount Hermon? Lots of commentators think it is that David's saying, here's where you find the blessing of the Lord uh, in, in Israel on, on the mountains of God. Uh, I don't think that's what David's talking about. Uh, David's subject has been unity and harmony. I think he's saying, here's where you find the blessing of God. You find it in unity. You find it in harmony. There's where you find the blessing. And what is the blessing? He says it's life evermore. And I'm not saying that unity is the reason why God gives us life. What I'm saying is that when we have sweet, precious, good unity and harmony, there's where we're going to find the gift of God, which is life with Him forever, you know, by His gift, by, by His Spirit, by the work of His Spirit. One of the things that I kept reading amongst the commentators was that this psalm speaks of God giving us unity. God pouring, God pours out the oil. God, uh, God brings the dew down. So therefore, unity is this gift of God that he pours out on us. And so we need to pray for unity. And, uh, and I don't know that everyone meant that that way, but I read this uh, quite a bit. This was how lots of people understood this psalm, that, that God's describing the gift when he gives it to us. Um, but it kept sounding like to me, and again, I'm not saying they were all saying this, but it kept sounding like they were saying that Jesus passive, passively pours out unity on us as a gift. Unity and harmony are his gifts. And the problem with that, from my perspective, is that that's not what I read in my Bible. 
Well, my Bible seems to say to me, what I seem to hear God saying as I read my Bible is this, pursue unity, press for unity, give yourself to unity. In other words, don't misunderstand, I am not trying to remove God from this equation at all. I'm not trying to say that God has nothing to do with our unity. He does. He gives us His Holy Spirit when He saves us. His Holy Spirit gives us fruits. He works in our life that produce unity. In fact, in just a moment when we read a verse that it says, you know, give yourself to, to preserve or maintain the unity of the Spirit. So God is, God is, I'm not, God gives us unity as we follow Him. But I tell you what, if we look at unity as just something we passively receive, I think we're missing a big point that God wants to make to us. And that point that I think God wants to make to us is that we need to give ourselves to pursue unity and harmony in the body of Christ. How delightfully good it is when we're in unity and harmony, but unity demands that you chase it, that you pursue it, that you give yourself to it. Let me see if I can prove it. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? It's like there's a conditional statement there. If you love me, then people will know you belong to me. If you love me, if you love one another, excuse me, if you love one another, then people are going to know that you have unity and they're going to know me because that's where life is, by the way. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. You notice it doesn't say the God of love and peace will be with you. Therefore, you'll be of one mind and live in peace. It's the other way around. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Philippians 2.1, therefore, if there be any encouragement from being united with Jesus, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Another one, Romans 14, 13. Please don't tire of these because i got a couple more. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you no longer walking according to, to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Jesus died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not in eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then let us pursue what there it is. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. Philippians 1:27. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, here it is again, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now just one more. Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any possessions 
And no one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So if you agree with me that you have a major responsibility in pursuing unity, if you agree with me, listen carefully to what I'm going to say next, because I want to help us with this. I want to help us live in harmony and love one another, okay? So that we might be good, so that we might be set apart, so that we might be refreshed, and we might be blessed with life. And how do we do that? I've got one more passage. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I'm going to walk really quickly through this text. It's another one of the texts. It's probably the premier text on striving, pressing, working uh, for unity. But in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, we're to live worthy of what Christ has done for us. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The reason why we should pursue unity is because we have one God, one Father, one faith, one baptism. I mean, he's over all and through all and in all. He's the reason why we should pursue unity. Now notice the characteristics. I think there's like five of them. And I added a sixth one. First one was humility. And humility is not thinking of yourself as better than others. It's the opposite of pride. It's, it's assuming that everything and everyone exists for your joy and satisfaction. That's what pride is. Humility would be the other way around. We're all on equal footing here. There's no greats among us. If there is a great among us, who would be the greatest among us? Answer me. The servant of all, right? So there's no greats among us. If your focus is yourself, then you're proud. And pride destroys unity like nothing else. Be like Jesus, though he was God, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. The second thing that Paul says, he says, be completely humble and be completely gentle. And gentleness has to do with considering others, forfeiting your rights. The natural sinful tendency is I want my rights. I want my way. I want my stuff, right? That's not what we're to do in this body. That's not what we're to do in this family. We are to, we are to forfeit our rights, our preferences for others, okay? Professing Christians are often rude and harsh. The antithesis of gentleness um, we're, we're harsh and rude with those who are different than us or people who disagree with us. And some ridicule others who disagree with him. But remember Jesus' own heart towards sinners. It says he was gentle and lowly of heart. And then Paul says to us like this, this is the things he says to us. He says, if you're restoring the repentant sinner in Galatians 6.1, you know how you're supposed to do it? With gentleness. If you're a pastor or a leader and you are seeking to correct someone, maybe someone who's not a believer or maybe someone who is a believer, how are you to do it? 2 Timothy 2.25. With gentleness. With gentleness. Imagine how many conflicts in any organization or any group of people, imagine how fewer conflicts there would be if we always responded with gentleness. 
I mean, so many different, I mean, so many less. By our gentleness, we know that we are filled with the Spirit because gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. The third thing Paul says is be patient with one another. He said, be completely humble and gentle. And these, these are how to deal with one another in community. Be patient, he says. And uh, patient has, patience has to do with my being, bearing up your shortcomings and your faults, your weaknesses and failures. I need to be patient with, with your fallings and your failings. But you need to be patient with mine as well. We need to be patient with each other. Paul spoke of God's patience with himself in 1 Timothy 1.16. I can't speak for you, but I tell you what, God has been patient with me. God has been patient with me for the last 63 years of my life. He's been patient with me. And, uh, and I have a feeling that he's been pretty patient with you too. You know, and the truth is, if he can be patient with you and he can be patient with me, then why can't we be patient with each other? We should be patient with each other. If the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, He fills us so that we have patience. Galatians 5, and the fruit of the Spirit. Now here's where I've added one that's not in the Ephesians passage. I'm adding the character quality of forgiveness here. I'm calling it, I'm calling patience 3A, I'm calling forgiveness 3B. And I'm going to sneak it in there even though it's not in Ephesians. And the reason why I'm sneaking it in there is because I think you can't really have patience with others without also having a spirit of forgiveness as well. I, I think patience and forgiveness are kind of like maybe two sides to the same coin. And, and see, see, if, see if you don't agree with what I'm saying in, in, in light of what Paul says to the Colossians, which was a, a, a prison epistle that he wrote about the same time as he wrote the Ephesian letter. He says in Colossians 3.12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The same things we just looked at, right? But then he says this, bearing with one another, that's the patience part, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So Paul, in in this passage anyway, links patience and forgiveness He says, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whatever grievance against one another. The key to being patient is often forgiveness. If someone hurts you, especially if they sneak up on you and you don't know it, it hurts. It hurts a lot, right? And patience, and and if they keep hurting you over and over and over again, then patience becomes harder. And you know the way that you have patience in those situations? You kind of need a reset. You need a re- hard reset. And you know what a hard reset is? It's forgiveness. Forgiveness takes you back to ground zero. So when you're willing to forgive and let go, then, then you're back at ground zero again. And you can, start, you can start being patient again. You can start demonstrating that patience. Fight. Fight. For unity and fight for it with forgiveness. Number four, love. Back to the Ephesians text, bearing with one another in love. Love isn't a feeling or emotion, although we all get it. Love, romantic love and all that. I mean, we know the power of romantic love. 
But that's, when the Bible talks about love, it's, it's, I mean, it does mention those things, but not, when you read love in your New Testament all the time, it's not really talking about the romantic love. It's, it's not talking about a feeling or emotion. It's talking about sacrificially preferring others as more important than yourself. That's what it is. God both defined it and described it for us in, in Romans 5, 8, I think. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's, it's defined as the initiator and it's, and it's displayed and in sacrifice. So love really is at the root of everything we do to pursue unity. You hearing me, everyone? Love is really at the root of that. Now, I don't know, did you catch the Colossians passage? And I get it. Those letters were written about the same time. But in verse 14 of the Colossians, he says, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know how we're going to have really perfect unity as a church family or harmony? It's going to be when we're willing to love one another sacrificially. By our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we show that we belong to Jesus and we show that we are born again. If the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, we will be loving as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, number five. um, Number five, commitment, zeal, sacrifice. I, I didn't know what word to use there, but this is the idea I was telling you about that I think David or God would say to us, unity, and again, I don't want to take away from God, God helping us or or giving us his spirit or working in our lives towards unity. I'm not trying to say this is apart from God, but I'm trying to tell you it's not just we just passively sit by and unity comes. No, we need to pursue. And and so we need to have a commitment to unity, a zeal for unity. So verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It almost seems to say, hey, unity, from the outset, when we begin to follow Jesus, unity is going to be what we're going to have, right? So we need to make every effort to maintain that, to keep that unity. This isn't a laissez-faire commitment either. In my mind, this is an all-out thing. You have to totally be in on it. Notice that if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the natural outcome is unity, harmony, We've got to maintain this. So maybe, maybe, maybe I could have simply said to you, and, and in taking less time, walk by the Spirit, and you will have unity. Walk by the Spirit. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, patience, forgiveness. It's all these things that we've been talking about. So here's, here's a question to ask yourself. Are, are you willing to genuinely, sacrificially fight for harmony and unity Or are you more about fighting for your own rights and privileges and preferences? That's a question for us. And here's a reminder for everyone. This is a really good illustration, even if I came up with it on my own. As you're driving down the road and there's no one in front of you, you don't need any patience. But if there's somebody in front of you that's going slow, maybe not obeying the, the, the road signs, that's when you need patience, right? So here's my point. You know, maintaining unity when we're all unified, it's no big deal, right? It's maintaining unity when, they're, when they're, the rub is coming in. That's where we got to fight for it, right? When, when, the, when the driver's in front of us. Fighting for unity is when it's threatened. That's when we need humility and gentleness and patience and love and sacrifice. So let's cultivate a life in the spirit so that when pressure points come, 
we can still experience the goodness, the loveliness of the brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.